Welcome to In Between. A few weeks ago, I was again like traveling in an Uber. As usual, I got into a talk, like into a conversation with the Uber driver, and we talked about many, many things about politics, about how he's 45 now, and he always thought that he's, I don't know, that he's working since nine years, and he always thought that he can afford his own house, but still it's not happening, and a lot about how it's politicians faults and and so on and at some point also a very usual thing he started uh, showing me pictures of his wife and his kids and talking about them and then after a while he showed me another picture and by the way all of this is happening while we are driving and he keeps giving me his phone to look at these different pictures and he shows me a picture of another woman and then he starts telling me how there's this other woman and how he also sleeps with her and uh I was like, wow, is he now just telling me that he's cheating? And he told me how, you know, how life is short and you need to take what you get and uh, you need to make the best out of it and all of that. And it was quite, I was quite dazzled by the fact that he shared this with me. And I was like, okay. And at some point he asked me if I want to have a drink with him once. And I was like, no, no, this is not happening. And uh, I was already scared that this conversation might turn nasty or go into a very weird direction but then he got it and he was like oh don't um, i'm sorry no problem at all and when i got out of the uber i was like thinking why did he share this with me like i found it very yeah very special somehow i mean maybe it was a way he tried to test boundaries and see if he has a chance with me but or it seems like it has something to do with the anonymity of the city like the fact that he will probably never have me as a passenger again. I don't know his family. I don't know anyone. And he can share that with me. And when I talked about this, yeah, this little happening with some of my friends, they said, like some of them said that they have done similar things before, like talking to a rickshaw driver and like telling him some intimate secrets or some some stuff that is going on in their lives in the knowledge that in this big city they will probably never meet this person again and this person doesn't know anyone they know and like kind of I kind of have a thing for these stories in the anonymity of the big city I find it very interesting how this can be something so comforting somehow to share something like this with strangers and I don't know to know that your secrets are protected by this anonymity and just this vastness of the city and since I have some kind of a thing for like these little stories in big cities, there's another thing, like another scene which I observed like a couple of times now in my neighborhood and I find it very interesting and I I keep finding myself thinking about it. So there's this fancy car which is placed, uh, which is parked like in my neighborhood in front of a house and not every evening, but I would say several times a week around the evening around eight I see the same like middle-aged men sitting in his car listening to music mostly something western 
And after a while, I noticed after I seen him a couple of times, and I was always wondering, like, why is he sitting in the car, like listening to music in front of his probably his own house? First, I thought he's the driver, but then looking at his clothes, I'm pretty sure he must be the owner of the car. And I realized that he's drinking. He most of the time he has a vodka or a rum bottle, and he keeps pouring himself drinks in little in a little glass and. Many times I was thinking, like, why is he doing this? Like, has he just come to work and he needs that before he gets home to his wife and children? Did he have a fight with his wife and now he comes out here to find some peace in his car with his music and his drinks? Or, like, what is happening there? What is the story behind this scene which I observed already so many nights? And I just love these little scenes where you're kind of left in the dark and you are making up your own story in, in order to kind of understand them. I just really have a thing for these kind of stories. Then lately more and more when I'm sitting on my terrace, like I find myself thinking about the fact then that in a bit more than two months, I have to go back home again. And which is a thought that right now is very strange, even a bit scary because I feel like I'm so well established. I have my flat. I have my friends that I see every day. And like, like just leaving all of that like seems so impossible right now because I'm so, I feel like I've arrived so much here in this life. And I was listening a lot to one of my favorite songs by Dido, Life for Rent. And she sings about uh, what if my life is just for rent and I don't learn how to buy. And in a way, I've been thinking the same, like these, this little life in India that I've built up or that I keep coming back to build it up over and over again, like so many times already, it's kind of just rented. I don't own it. Like it's, it's not mine or it's not really mine. It's, it always seems like it's rented for a certain period of time. And then it's kind of, I don't know. And then I have to leave it again because it's not permanent. It's and I thought a lot about how different phases in life maybe sometimes seem like they're rented, they're not yours. And yeah, the thought of leaving right now seems, yeah, seems very difficult because it's like everything is so set and has become so normal around me. And how much I've become rooted again, I think in this other life, I also realized uh with a lot of pride <laughs> when it happened to me a couple of times that uh, some Uber drivers or some rickshaw drivers like asked me like, are you Indian? Uh, in Hindi, of course. And uh, of course, I know that they don't really think I'm Indian because <laughs> I'm too blonde and blue eyed to actually be Indian. But it shows that they're kind of confused. They don't know where to put me and why do I speak Hindi? But I definitely do not look Indian like something there, but they are also a little confused. And of course, I was very proud of myself every time that this happened. And it also has happened before that friends of mine told me that sometimes we forget that you're a foreigner, which again, of course, cannot be true because my constant questions for Hindi translations, I'm sure that will not make them forget that I'm a, a foreigner so soon. But there was this one nice incident in one of my friend circles when uh, when uh, another person that I don't know was coming and on the phone my friend 
like she told him like okay so see there's x there's y and there's tanya like just come and when he came apparently then he pulled her to the side and he was like who is this foreigner sitting there and she's like yeah i told you that's tanya then he's like but tanya is an indian name like tanya is a foreigner just like yeah and it was very it was somehow very funny it made me think again of i mean it made me appreciate that friend a lot for like not having to point out constantly that i am a foreigner but also it made me again think about my name when i was younger i never really liked my name my sister has a very special name and it always seemed to me that my name is so boring and like so so common so normal compared to it and i never really liked it but then later when i started traveling i realized that uh when i came to spanish speaking countries people said oh tanya that's a spanish name and i came to india people said oh that's an indian name and like of course everything like uh in connection to russia like people would say it's a russian name or like in german languages it's also very common so in that sense it's a name that seems to exist in a lot of languages so a lot of people it's already common for them so they don't know how to write it usually but they <laughs> know how to pronounce it or have their own way of pronouncing it or it kind of it seems familiar to them and i realized that's something very practical and also in a way it really it fits me and the kind of life that i'm living like the kind of life i chose to lead Another thing like a small I would say in between moment was also when I went to India coffee house one morning the one in Delhi and uh, when I entered suddenly there was this there was a certain smell that I remember that when I came to India for the first time that was like what I noticed as like wow this is different and wow this this is India this is my India or whatever and sometimes I don't know you have that the different places have a different kind of way they I don't know have a different smell and <laughs> and like all the memories come when you have that smell and so on and then when i came to that coffee house suddenly i i smelled it again and i was like wow it has been months that i have not like smelled that and that i have not realized that wow there there is this different smell and it has become so normal in a way and that's again like a little in between moment for myself where i noticed like how Yeah, how normal everything has become for me. Another thing that I'm thinking about a lot in relation to my research lately are hierarchies. So I have this one informant who is like the most Indian European I've ever met. Like her Hindi is amazing. The way she she knows how to navigate a lot of. Indian upper middle class spaces the way she talks to people the way she passes off as indian which is a bit easier than she's not blonde but the way she knows exactly how much hindi to speak and how much english to speak so in order to seem indian but indian upper class or upper middle class whatever and i'm like dazzled and amazed every time like i hang out with her i'm so fascinated <laughs> and it's like the exactly the kind of in between i'm interested in and i started to go out with her and i noticed like how how easily she passes as indian and how easily she slips into that role and into a certain class and like navigates everything and I noticed in the beginning when we went to places let's say when we were in the uber she has a lot of different requests and tells the driver what to do and do this and do that and uh, 
the same when we go to a coffee shop or when we go to some places she has a lot of requests and she talks to the people she makes sure that we get a good treatment and this and that and in the beginning I felt a little uncomfortable with this behavior maybe because it clashed with some of my Swiss values or I'm not sure but after a while I realized that a lot of that the people who are like being talked to like this like the Uber driver or the waitresses they don't seem to mind at all like they choke around with her like they she also compliments them in things and it's like it's like a whole different relationship and they are not minding that at all they're actually yeah they seem to like it or it seems to be normal in some way and I talked with a couple of people about this some of my friends and they were all really amazed when they were hearing about her and they were like wow it's it's like amazing how she learned to navigate these hierarchies and they told me that like it's a thing like the the waiters the uber drivers and all of these people or like let's say lower class people or people who do jobs considered as lower they kind of appreciate or that's what they said I'm not sure if it's true but they seem to appreciate the fact that the hierarchies are clear with my friend that from the beginning on she clearly makes them feel like see this is this is my level this is my class and there is you and that's uh that's how we should interact with each other and uh, this is the treatment I deserve and whatever. But the fact that she manages to do that and then also joke with them and compliment them a bit and if her requests get fulfilled, like she knows how to like, uh, yeah, really show them and she tips them really well and so on. Like she's very like, very well versed in navigating these kind of relationships. And many times I realize like how still I know about all of these hierarchies, but I am very bad at like navigating them. Like unlike her, since I'm coming from a background which is very egalitarian, so I still have the habit of treating the lowest worker, the the rickshaw driver, the waiter, I treat all of them kind of the same. <laughs> now I would at home or like with the same politeness and friendliness and all. And a lot of times I realize how people get uncomfortable because of this, because they look at me and by the mere fact of looking at me, they already give me a high position in the hierarchy, but then I don't act up to it. Like I'm, I don't establish the same authority as my friend. I'm not, I don't know. I don't seem to establish this hierarchy as at all. And I don't seem to act out the kind of place they give me in the hierarchy. And that confuses a lot of people. And I had an interesting conversation with her about that. I told her like, you know, I, I'm so amazed how you can do that and how you learned that because I've interviewed other foreigners who have lived in India for 60 years or 40 years. And I don't see, I don't think they have learned it to, to do it the way, the way you did because you only lived here for six years and still you're managing that well. And then when I told her like, yeah, I sometimes I think I want to learn a bit more about these hierarchies or want to learn how to navigate them then but I like I somehow I can't and then she said no you don't want to it's not that you can't you don't want to because uh, you think that because for you you connect the way of being the your way of treating them you connected with egalitarian ideas with human rights with being fair and all of that but you need to think like are all of these ideas equally applicable to all kind of social contexts or not and she talked about like sometimes you have to kind of understand which level of society like which level you have to act in order to make your the person opposite to you 
to make them feel comfortable. So it's a lot about making them feel comfortable and you have to start and learn this. And yeah, it was very interesting how reflected and conscious she could talk about it. And she told me how it was difficult for her to establish relationships with other foreigners because when other foreigners would see her treating people in a certain way, they would be shocked and they would be horrified. And even I in the beginning was a little bit uncomfortable But then she said, but that's the way things work here and that's the way you get things done. And uh, it's kind of, yeah, another kind of in-between moment for her to bridge these two ways of looking at interactions, of looking at things. And yeah, I noticed this kind of in-between within myself and I'm asking myself all these questions. Should I change my behavior in order to fit better into the hierarchies or not? And can I change or is it too ethically ingrained in me that I can't? Or do I find it too wrong or... There's a lot of very interesting questions here, like for my research also, and uh, I will keep on thinking about them. One other really beautiful moment was when uh, I decided to go cycling in the morning with two friends of mine. So we met at 6 a.m. I borrowed a cycle and we were like cycling around in the city and it was beautiful because the streets were empty the air was still fresh there was no traffic yet there was all of this mist in these broad alleys with all the trees and it was it was like truly magical and it also kind of reminded me like sometimes when I'm like traveling on the roads and in the day or in the evening I see these bicycles on the very left side of the road and while all the bikes and cars are so fast these bicycles people on the bicycles always seem to have their own rhythm or they seem to be from a different time somehow because they're like traveling so slow and so I don't know in peace and like it was very interesting that I kept seeing them and thinking that and today like I was I was traveling in that other time zone and that other speed or rhythm and I really enjoyed it then one last thing I have a friend who lives in Calcutta. He's studying somewhere else now. But he invited me to come with him to Calcutta because I've never been there. And uh, also for my podcast, we wanted to do kind of an audio walk of Calcutta so that we would go to different places and and uh, do some podcasting. Afterwards, we would take a train and go on a hike like nearby. And that was our plan. But first, uh, we would discover Calcutta and I came there and it was like really amazing like we were driving around with the bike we would stop for chai and we would stop at the random places and he would tell me small anecdotes and uh, show me places or tell me some memories of his and uh, all the things we like encountered on this small little trip uh, you're gonna hear this now after arriving at night and being hosted very sweetly by my friend's family we started our Calcutta day early morning on his bike. Your home is so scenic. I love being in a new place early morning. You see a strange city waking up, I've always loved that in some way. And since we were there just a few days before Durga Puja, the most important festival in Bengal, um, our first stop was a place at the riverbanks of the Ganga River where uh, these traditional sculptures like 
of uh, Goddess Durga for the Durga Puja are being made. Slowly the Ganga came into sight and we were like driving along it and it was like very, it was very beautiful. Like the riverbank was beautiful and uh, everywhere they were selling these kind of plastic canisters or something probably to take home water and I had to think a lot of times that about what my friend had told me about oh we can go and swim in the Ganga but uh, I sometimes get rashes if I do that and I've been thinking about that water and I saw a, like a, a place with a lot of newspapers like towering like towers of newspapers and uh, cycles where the newspapers were like tied onto which probably would any moment like leave and like start distributing these newspapers everywhere and uh, slowly we went into these tiny streets these tiny gullies and uh, filled with statues and like everywhere where on both sides were these workshops with uh, like you, you see already see the statues outside some of them were still in the state of just straw some of them were already dressed and painted and so many arms because the depiction of Durga has so many arms and uh, yeah some of them were in the early stages with just straw like building the frame and some of them were already like there was mud on top of it and others ones were already like painted and dressed and uh, from everywhere you feel like you see arms coming out of any of different doors and uh, so many eyes and so many like these little workshops just stuffed to the brim like full with uh, different statues like painted in bright colors and like painted with a uh, like just brilliant work hmm. so this is Komatuli. So this is where almost all of Kolkata's idols for Durga Puja get made. And it's not just about Durga Puja, a lot of idols are made here, a lot of idol makers are here. But Durga Puja is the biggest festival so that is why uh, this place is famous for that. And it's not like these things are made just before the Puja. Because it takes a lot of time to make the whole thing. So the work goes on year round and this is this place is close to the river because it has to be because uh, the myth says that you have to have some amount of clay from the Ganges in the island. Mm. So, yeah, that's why they have it right beside the river. After five days everything is going to be thrown out. The idols would end up in the river and that's the end of it. <laughs> So the idols are made with again bamboo strips and bamboo strips will give you the main structure and then you have a lot of hay bound together to give it shape and clay to make the whole thing hard. So that's that's the basic process of making an idol. Uh, later we were walking a bit in these small like alleys and uh, looking into different workshops and we noticed there are a lot of people with cameras like uh, walking around and trying to take some So normally you would see a bunch of people going around with cameras and trying to get that iconic shot. Like him? Yep, exactly. <laughs> so I shouldn't have pointed. <laughs> he comes. He's happy you're pointing at him. But... Uh. And at one point, we also could go into one of the workshops and and talk a little bit to the people. 
Every now and then stopping for some tiny little chais, very sugary chais and maybe a cigarette and some... My friend was telling me some anecdotes or some good stories. And I saw some bicycles which were like... Where so many coconuts were tied onto them. <laughs> and of course the iconic yellow taxis were everywhere. And for some reason the city really reminded me of Havana in Cuba because... These old colonial buildings, which are kind of already where the walls outside are slowly being <laughs> eaten up by the humidity. And at the same time, all of these alleys with trees and, uh, yeah, with trees. I don't know why, but somehow it reminded me a lot of Havana. And then we also saw the very iconic trams and I loved them when we finally arrived at our next stop. Let's go. Yeah, so right now we are in Y Channel, hmm. the designated protest spot. So this is just beside the tram depot. So you would get speeches interrupted by trams coming in and going out. <laughs> so next we are, next we'll be going to the very famous, uh, wait, I'll show, I'll show you. Hmm. We are getting Nimbu Banu first. Yes, you need to hydrate. Exactly. Okay, I'm so, ready. Okay, so this is Park Street. Uh, on one end it ends up in Esplanade, near Esplanade. So Esplanade is this center of the city where you have the stadium and some major hotels and everything. And that is the place that you would go to if you want to call a political rally and show your strength of numbers. So anyway, Esplanade has uh, this market, New Market, which is one of the largest markets here. And there used to be a saying which was like, which basically means if you search for it, you will get uh, tiger's milk too. But I don't think that's true anymore. <laughs> it might have been true at some point. But anyway, um, like I said, there were some major hotels. So below those hotels, you would find shops of high-profile brands. And right across the street, you would see street stalls selling the same things. And which might even come from the same factory. Maybe they just fell off. But anyway, you would get a choice. You can either pay more below the hotel or you can pay much less right across the street for the same thing. 
Park Street, what I really liked were all of these beautiful old buildings where like also the one where we were sitting in and uh, having a chai while my friend was telling me stories about the place where like all of these plants are like creeping up the buildings and it just makes them, yeah, look really beautiful. Right now we're in Park Street and this is the old uh, British neighborhood. This is the Firangi neighborhood, so to speak. <laughs> the other end of the street opens up in Park Circus, which is supposed to be the Muslim neighborhood of Kolkata. So you would get a lot of good restaurants there and a huge circus ground. But more about Park Street. So this has been, as I said, the British neighborhood. So when the British left India, a few of them stayed back because they had set up businesses or whatever or like the place. And post-independence, they did not really flourish all that well. So you have somewhat of an Anglo-Indian community here, which is ironically a bit marginalized. And there are songs about this community. There is a very famous song called Marianne, where one purely Bengali boy has a relationship with this Anglo-Indian girl, Marianne, and then that doesn't work out in the end because this Bengali boy's family is like, no, she is not pure or whatever. So it's a sweet song. We'll sing that later. But uh, the thing about Park Street is that this is supposed to be the most glorious or the most shiny street in Kolkata and this is the Christmas place so on Christmas night people from all over the city or around would come here to see the Christmas decorations because that still happens and that is encouraged so you would get a lot of crowd and a lot of lights to give you a Christmas vibe here and uh, then we arrived at our next stop Okay, so this uh, place we're in, this is uh, officially the Academy of Fine Arts and it's called Nondon, really where you have the intellectual or art stuff happening. Nondon is a museum and more importantly, it's a cinema hall. So you get great movies at very low prices, like 20 or 30 rupees tickets and those are the good seats. <laughs> so, if you come in the evening, you would see a lot of people hanging out here, displaying their pictures or showing off their singing skills or just showing off their intellectual skills. If you want to prove that you're an intellectual person, you would come here. <laughs> the stage that we are sitting on right now, this is an open stage, so anyone can perform anything here. Uh, we once did a play here. It was a whole program, part of a whole program, so we did plays and singing and everything. At this next stop, we were like uh, parking our bike somewhere and then walking quite a bit to get into what looked like a park from the outside, but what turned out to be a huge field. And it was very interesting. As soon as we were like walking inside, there was lawns of grass, there were trees, there were like chai sellers and newspaper sellers like sitting in the shade. And suddenly all the traffic noise was just gone. All the traffic noise is gone. Exactly. 
and it's just this huge field, these trees. It was like a completely a green oasis in the middle of the city and uh, horses grazing and yeah, it was like a little miracle, like uh, this kind of oasis was definitely not what I had expected. So you asked what is my favorite place? This is it. This is Moaidan. Moaidan literally means field. So that's why this huge field is named field. This is where if you come in the evening you would see couples everywhere under every single tree, under every single branch of the same tree. It's a very nice place in the evening. And again, this place is also a designated hangout place. If you come in the evening, you will see loads of people hanging out, sitting, playing cricket, football and anything and everything. And the horses are the police horses. And there's a race course also, which is further down that way. So, yeah, the horses have to graze somewhere. This is where they come. Our next stop was a place close again to the riverbanks of Ganga. But when we reached there, I received a phone call from my sister with the news that my mother just had a heart attack and passed away. And I received these news like while looking at the Ganga, like very scenically. And our little trip through Kolkata ended right there. And so did our plans to go trekking because I decided to immediately fly home. And thankfully I found the flight the same night via Delhi. I think for many social anthropologists, this is the biggest nightmare that you are in the field, you're doing research, maybe you're even in a remote area, which I would have been if I would have boarded the train we had planned to board at night to go into another region to hike. And uh, yes, you're remote, you're abroad, you're in the field and someone dies. So in many ways, like uh, the biggest fear yeah, I have now experienced it, I would say. On my way to the airport, on the back of the bike, I had many thoughts and I had many more thoughts in the following days and some of them I wrote down later and I would like to share some of them with you. In the movie Memoirs of a Geisha, they talk about a poem called Loss on a Temple Wall. It has three words, but the poet has scratched them out because loss can't be read. It can only be felt. I think about this poem a lot these days. Whenever I hug my sister and we silently cry, too overwhelmed by the size and the incomprehensibility of our loss but connected by feeling the same pain and understanding each other as if we were one. Grief is a slow process in which moments of crying and desperation, moments of normality and even happiness alternate in a day, sometimes in an hour. The own mind becomes fickle, a place covered with thin ice, impossible to predict which step will carry you over it and which one will make it break. No matter how many times I've already said or written by now that she's dead, it just doesn't click. I still feel like she's gonna come back. The hardest part are the little traces of her everywhere in the house. The candles she put up, 
the flowers she was arranging, the things she has started and left midway. The plans already made that now will never take place. The food she felt like eating and asked my sister to buy the day before or the Christmas gifts she had already ordered. And I think this is the first time we really start understanding the immediacy of death. The question, how are you, has become one of the most <laughs> difficult ones to answer. I had certain ideas of what grieving meant, and I'm still exploring what it means to me, telling myself that there is no right way to do it, but multiple ways instead. For me, a lot of it seems to be about creating a narrative that fits for you and allows you to come to terms with what happened. It seems to be about finding the right frame to look at the world in peace, to make sense of it, on a very personal level, just for yourself. And that's one thing we have been doing a lot. In conversations, in silence, in discussions. Twisting and turning thoughts, memories, conversations we had with her, as well as our own spiritual beliefs, until like in a mosaic, it all fits together somehow, joined in a new way, forming a bridge on which to cross and move on. And because death is immediate, this episode ends here as abruptly as my Calcutta trip. But because one needs to live and go on with one's life, the next one will come soon. Mm.